Thank you, brethren, for singing the gospel yeah. to me and with me. The Bible tells us that we are supposed to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, yeah. teaching and admonishing one another. Yes. And we just did. And so, because I want to make sure you understand what we just sang, let me take a couple of minutes on those two songs that were chosen by someone else, but I enjoyed every word of them. My faith hath found a resting place. The God of the Bible is described as the great and dreadful and the great and terrible God. He judged the entire human race for the one sin of Adam and Eve. 100 billion souls to three deaths, spiritual death, physical death, and eternal death. That is the God we're going to meet soon. That God sent a flood that suffocated every single person on earth, senior citizens and infants, except for eight souls. They found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The seven nations of Canaan were annihilated by Israel as they took the land of Canaan. We're going to meet the judge. We are going to meet the judge, and we are guilty for Adam's sin, and we are guilty for our countless sins. We will hear from the judge of all flesh, what do you plead? What is your plea? Nothing but the blood. We sang last Lord's Day. What we just sang now? Jesus died for me. That will be our plea. Jesus died for me. And I need no other argument. I need no other plea. But it is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Judge, you, what do you plead? Jesus died for me, and I don't need any other argument or plea. There's one other person present. Who is it? The Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is there to confirm, Father, I died for him. The gavel comes down. Righteous! That is justification, to be declared righteous by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now that's just getting us started. I had the privilege of preaching a funeral recently, and the sermon was entitled, You Need a Lawyer. I just explained the answer to that. Wasn't that a perfect song? Wasn't it a perfect song? Watch this one. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. That's a lawyer. In the Bible, he's called an intercessor, a mediator, an advocate. Before the throne, my surety stands. My surety. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede. intercede. That's the work of a lawyer, an intercessor. Verse 3, five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. 
They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. Pardoned on the death of my son. Justified by the life of my son. Heaven is yours. You're a joint heir with my son of the universe. The doctrine of adoption. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Unbelievable. It's the gospel. It's unsearchable. It's unspeakable. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8, and let's finish our study of the 8th chapter of the Gospel of John. We get to meet and watch and listen to our lawyer, to our mediator, to our Savior, to our Lord, to our intercessor, as we read the words of this Gospel. John chapter 8. We have four verses left. Beginning at verse 56. To appreciate verse 56, we will jump back going over verses 54 and 55 because they are answering the final four words of verse 53. We want the first part of verse 53 because that's what Jesus is taking up again. In verse 53, the Jews said to Jesus, Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead, and the prophets are dead? The answer, verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Then took they up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Amen and amen. You know the exchange. In the Gospel of John, the word Abraham is only mentioned in this 8th chapter. And in this 8th chapter, Abraham is mentioned nine times. The Jews' trust was in Abraham. They did not believe they needed to repent to do anything toward Jesus Christ. They did not need a substitutionary sacrifice. They had God's religion. They had God's word. They had God's priests. And after all, they had Abraham to the father of their nation. Abraham was the friend of God. And therefore, by their biological, physical descent from Abraham, they would go to heaven. The constant problem of the Jews. John the Baptist had to deal with it. Which verses I gave you earlier today. Jesus had to deal with it. The Apostle Paul had to deal with it. That is why Romans chapter 4, Paul writes... What shall we then say that Abraham our father hath found? And so he deals with Abraham for a whole chapter. Then, Galatians chapters 3 and 4, he deals with Abraham again, pointing out 
that Abraham was justified by faith 430 years before the law of Moses, which gave Israel their code. It's beautiful. Once you understand the Jewish problem, to see how John Jesus and Paul dealt with it helps to open up the New Testament. But here we are, and we have seen them going back and forth about Abraham. The first occurrence is verse 33. Jesus had told them that they needed to continue in his word if they were going to be his disciples indeed. Because believing isn't enough. You need to continue in obeying Jesus Christ. Then the next verse, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Here's their response. We be Abraham's seed. And we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Well, Jesus goes on to explain that he meant it spiritually, that they were the servants of sin, and servants don't get to hang around and get the inheritance because the inheritance is for the Son. And if they would know the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, could indeed make them free, and they would get the inheritance. But they were going about it the wrong way. They would miss the inheritance because the inheritance was in the true seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this has gone back and forth. And now we come to verse 53, where they ask Jesus, Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead? And that's a rhetorical question to them. They don't believe there's any possibility of an answer that he's greater than Abraham. They're mocking him, because these are children of the devil. Verse 44 tells us, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He loves lies, you love lies. He loves murder, you love murder. That's why you're going to kill me for preaching the truth to you, because you hate truth and love lies. And that's what's explained there. The only thing that makes us love truth is not intelligence. It's not education. It's not environment. It's regeneration. Verse 47. He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. How do we get of God? John 1.13, starting this gospel, told us, Not of blood, blowing out the Jews. Not of the will of the flesh, blowing out Arminians. Not of the will of man. All the other Catholic doctrines and her daughters that believe that Godparents can save a child. Blown out in one verse. Which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God regenerates us. Then we can hear God's word. Then we can understand God's word. Then we want to obey God's word. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the new birth and for regenerating us, for quickening us by your mighty spirit. What a difference it made. These unregenerate reprobates that are going to murder the Lord Jesus Christ in just six months respond and say, Art thou greater than our father Abraham? Well, the answer to that is, Yes, indeed he is. And yes, indeed he was. So we're at verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. They are making a timeline comparison. They are saying to Jesus, well, they're a, verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. They are saying, 
how can you promise immortality or not seeing death like you did in verse 51 since Abraham has died? And so they're, they're constructing this timeline. Abraham's way back here. Abraham's dead. Here's Jesus saying that if a man keeps my saying, he'll never see death. Art thou greater than our father Abraham? Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Am I greater than your father Abraham? Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Jesus did not say that Abraham had seen him, nor that he had seen Abraham. Jesus intends everyone to read the word of God carefully. Every word of God is pure. He did not say that Abraham had seen him. He said that Abraham had seen his day. That is the gospel era, and that is what it's called, the day of salvation. I'll show you in just a moment. The Jews did not pay good attention to words like they should have for the sake of the truth. The day under consideration here is the gospel day of the New Testament. The time that Abraham saw was the future coming of Jesus Christ as a mediator for his people. Quickly, Psalm 95. Let's find out about this day. Psalm 95, David made prophecy of it. Psalm 95 and verse 7. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if ye will hear his voice. Today, if ye will hear his voice. David, by prophecy, is telling of a day in which the Israelites should hear the voice of God. He's, a, he's going to go on and describe the temptation in the wilderness when the Jews would not take the land of Canaan, and so God cursed them, and that generation all died wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. That's the prophecy of it. Then we come to Isaiah 49. Isaiah chapter 49, and Isaiah makes a prophecy of it. Verse 8, Isaiah 49, 8, Thus saith the Lord, In an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee. And I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth to cause to inherit the desolate heritages. That's of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and the Apostle Paul will first pick up Isaiah's prophecy. We are dealing with a day. Jesus said in John 8, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. We've looked at David's prophecy. We've looked at Isaiah's prophecy. Look at Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 2. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. He's quoting from Isaiah 49, 8. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The, the New Testament era, this is after the crucifixion. This is Paul writing a church in Corinth, Achaia, Greece. Now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. So Paul 
takes Isaiah 49, 8 and tells us about the day of the Lord Jesus. Now look at Paul, take David. And we come over to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. This is fantastic, logical, rhetorical reasoning by the Apostle Paul in Hebrews 3 and 4, which we don't have time for, but it is precious. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today, if ye will hear his voice. That's Hebrews 3, 7. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today, if ye will hear his voice. Where did the Holy Ghost say that? Psalm 95 and verse 7. Verse 13. While it is said, today, if ye will hear his voice. Now this is years later. This is 65 AD or so before the destruction of Israel and Jerusalem. And so there it is again today in verse 13. Then verse 15. While it is said today, if ye will hear his voice. Did I just read that one to you? We want verse 13. For exhort one another daily while it is called today. Now there's daily used in the sense of our 24-hour cycle of a day, but today is describing a period of time of the New Testament. Daily, we ought to be provoking each other to use the New Testament time to repent. That's chapter 3. Look at chapter 4. Again, verse 7. Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David. Where did he say it? Psalm 95 and verse 7. Today, after so long a time, as it is said today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. David, by prophecy, told about the New Testament era that would face the Jews and they would have to make a decision. Are we going to take the land of faith, the rest of the gospel, by believing on Jesus? Or are we going to go back to Moses' system of animal sacrifices? That is the argument of Hebrews 3 and 4. Our fathers in the wilderness had the opportunity to take the land of Canaan, but they didn't. They refused. They were scared. They didn't have faith. They didn't believe that God could help them. And so God cursed them, and they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. And they all died. They were over the age of 20. And then here in Hebrews 3 and 4, the apostle Paul is resurrecting, bringing up, Psalm 95 and verse 7 and explaining there is another day. There is another opportunity. It's not the land of Canaan. It's the gospel rest of knowing that our salvation is complete and we are at rest. No more sacrifices, especially of animals, to be offered. That Jesus Christ is our great high priest, the only priest that we need in heaven in the presence of God for us, which is how chapter 4 goes on and ends. This is, this is the gospel. This is how you, you bring the two testaments together. That land of Canaan was just a little picture of what was going to come in the gospel rest and then eventually in heaven above. All of this is to say we are explaining the, the sense of the words of Jesus to the Jews. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. What was that day? That day was the gospel era of John the Baptist, then Jesus, Jesus dying, Jesus rising from the dead, and the gospel being preached in the world 
so that other nations, there would be believers in them to fulfill the promise, in thee shall all nations of the earth be blessed. Back to John chapter 8 and verse 56. Your father Abraham, whom you're appealing to, whom you're comparing me to, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Oh, yes. We don't look back at Father Abraham. Abraham was looking forward to Jesus Christ's day. Thank you, Lord. And he saw it and was glad. John 8, 56. What kept Abraham happy for 100 years from when he was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans at 75 until he died at the age of 175? What kept him happy? Do you think it was the land of Canaan? That's a bunch of fruitless sand at the eastern end of the Mediterranean. It may have been a land flowing with milk and honey compared to being a slave in Egypt, but he had to wander around to find suitable soil and to find wells and had to enter into confederacies with Philistines to have wells. It was not a prosperous place. Lot picked the prosperous plains of the River Jordan, but that's not what Abraham got. What was Abraham looking for in this life? What gave him joy? What filled his heart with gladness? It was knowing that an event was coming that would bless all nations of the earth through his seed, whose seed is Christ. And it would give the land of heaven. He was seeking a heavenly country. That's what Hebrews 11 tells us about Abraham. By faith, Abraham went out and he looked for a heavenly country whose builder and maker is God, and a city with foundations, things I've already said to you in this service, because it is repetition by which we learn, and we want to remember the true place of Abraham and the true identity of his seed. And if you're Jesus Christ today by faith, Galatians 3.26, baptism, Galatians 3.27, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The promise to own heaven. The promise to be there with a multitude no man can number. The promise, all enemies destroyed. The promise, God's people from every tribe, tongue, nation on earth. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. My dear brothers and sisters, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. What kept Abraham happy for a hundred years? Was it Sarah dying? Was it the problems between Ishmael and Isaac? Was it Keturah? Was it the six sons he had by Keturah? Was it having to fight for his wells with the Philistines? What made him happy? He saw the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw the gospel era and that we... We, this church, and other churches like us, we would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and there would be a multitude that no man can number through his seed of Jesus Christ. That's what kept him happy for a hundred years. He rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Notice, he saw it. He did not see me. We do not believe in the preexistence of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is a God-man. His divine nature is eternal. His human nature had a beginning with Mary. He's a God-man. He is perfect. He is perfectly eternal. 
He is perfectly like us so that he is a faithful and merciful high priest in things pertaining to God because he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. If anyone is confused by what I just said, you know I'm going to solve that confusion in verse 58 because Jesus is going to identify himself as I am. Beautiful. I hope you understand verse 56. My duty is to read in the book, in the law of God distinctly, and to give the sense. That's the sense of my day. That's the gospel era. David saw it. Isaiah saw it. And Paul told us exactly what the fulfillment was. Verse 57, here's these natural Jews, these natural men, they can't perceive any spiritual thoughts. They're children of the devil. They haven't been born again. They're reprobates. They're going to murder Jesus in six months. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus didn't say he saw Abraham. Where did they get that idea from? Twisting words. People are going to do it to you. You'll present the truth to them as kindly and gently and clearly and, and truthfully as you can. They'll twist the words. Thou art not yet 50 years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus didn't say he had seen Abraham. Jesus didn't say that Abraham had seen him. Jesus said Abraham had seen his day. The gospel era coming of justification of, all nation, of men in all nations of the earth through Jesus Christ, his seed. Verse 58, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, they want to confront him about a timeline in their little heads. They want to confront him about his age of being somewhere less than 50 compared to Abraham who had lived 2,000 years earlier. They want to confront him about a timeline. He's got an answer for them. You want to know if I'm greater than Abraham or not? Here's how I want to put it in words for you. Verily, verily, that doesn't occur in any other book of the Bible except the Gospel of John. And it's 25 times in this Gospel because it introduces something weighty that Jesus Christ is going to declare. Jesus said to these Jews that rejected him, Verily, verily, of a truth, of a truth, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. And Jesus full well knew how he was using those verb tenses. Before Abraham was. Abraham had a beginning. And before his beginning, I am. Now you and I know what I am means because we love Exodus 3.14. But the Jews probably knew what it meant a little bit better than you do. They knew that terminology and exactly what Jesus was saying by it, and so they pick up stones to stone him in verse 59. Though there are only five words that follow the verily, verily, we rejoice as Jesus exalts those five words. That double repetition of verily is beautiful. Before Abraham was, I am. Praise the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God Jehovah. Jesus is Jehovah in his divine nature. Jesus is fully man in his human nature. 
He is the perfect combination of them both. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Gospel of John is written for. John chapter 20 and verse 31 tells us that. These five words are glorious, and we revel in them as true believers of Jesus. They clearly state what the Jews knew. Abraham had a beginning and end. They clearly, physically, they clearly state what the Jews knew. God was eternal. I am that I am. The Jews knew the name of God being Jehovah, and that Jehovah means I am that I am. I exist. I do not know something as infantile and elementary as a timeline like you people have to have, past, present, and future. I am. It's fan- he is independent of any origin. He is independent of any source. He had no beginning. He has no end. He's not limited like you and I are. I am. It's a fantastic name of God. I am that I am. No one else gave me being. No one else has helped me. I am infinitely independent of all other sources, strength, or help. I am. What a God we worship. What they can talk about Allah all they want. We're going to talk about Jehovah. They can talk about Muhammad all they want. He's buried over there in the Middle East, and they have a great green mosque for him where he's buried. We will talk about God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no tomb for him because he's in heaven and he's turned the world upside down. The pitiful people they've influenced, he has turned the world upside down by the preaching of his gospel. Our Lord Jesus Christ's contrast of Abraham's limited existence on the timeline to his eternity is very emphatic. Could could you say it any shorter? Before Abraham was, I am. These five words are our Lord's response to the Jews contesting him about his age. Jesus claimed a divine, eternal nature by these five glorious words about himself. This was not unlike what he had said earlier about himself in John chapter 5 and in verses 54 and 55 right here. My Father honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your God. I know him. I keep his saying. Jews, if you want to compare my age to Abraham, I am older than Abraham. If you're comparing my somewhat less than 50 to his 2,000, I'm older. But because you are obstinately rebellious, I will state it in a way of glory that you're not going to like to hear. I am. It was not before Abraham was, I was. That is true. Before Abraham was, God was. But Jesus didn't state it that way. He went to a little higher level. Before Abraham was, I am. Oh, they didn't like that. As you can tell by the next verse. He used the present tense verb of being, am, to identify as Jehovah. We accept, exalt, and defend this present tense verb in its full implications. That he is Jehovah of the burning bush of Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. The point is our Lord's pre-existence 
He was eternal by his divine nature. Jesus Christ is a man that is fully God. Jesus Christ is a God-man. Jesus Christ did not exist before Mary had a baby. The divine nature of Jesus Christ existed, which was the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Then we beheld the glory as of the glory of the only begotten, the Father, full of grace and truth. It's not until that Word took on flesh that we had Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That is what we believe about the Sonship of Jesus Christ. The Word is not the Son. The Word, not the Son of God, the Word is God. The Word is not the Son of Jehovah. The Word is Jehovah. Jesus Christ is the Word made flesh. And Jesus is the Son of God by His supernatural conception in the womb of a virgin. And together came the eternal Word of God with a human nature, and we have the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth. So, the Bible can say about Jesus, the Son of God, that he grew in wisdom and stature. What part of Jesus grew in wisdom and stature? His human nature. His human nature had an increase from zero to a very high level of wisdom, and his human nature grew from zero to maybe six foot tall. He grew in wisdom and stature in his human nature. So it can also say in the New Testament that Jesus Christ created the worlds. How did he create the worlds? In his human nature? In his combined natures? Or in his divine nature? In his divine nature. But because after Mary had the baby, the angel told her that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And that was answering her question, how can this happen since I am a virgin and do not know a man sexually? How can it happen? The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. That is our Savior. This gospel tells us more about this aspect of him than the other three combined. Because we started off with John 1.1. Do you mind hearing it again? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And then just down 14 verses. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. No one had ever beheld the glory of the only begotten Son of God until Jesus was on earth. Prior to that, He was the Word of God. He was Jehovah, unbegotten in any sense of the word. John 1.18, if we come down a few more. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. The the most you're ever going to see of God is to see the Lord Jesus Christ 
because that's the God-man made as visible as an invisible spirit can be made for us to see him. And right now you're seeing him by the eye of faith from the words of Holy Scripture. Here's what he said about himself. Before Abraham was, I am. Is he worthy of you following him? How many of you were around in 1970 to hear the song, Put Your Hand in the Hand of a Man? Remember that song that rocketed to the tops of the church in 1970? Put your... Let me tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, he's a man. But before Abraham was, I am. Oh, what a Savior we have. Lord, thank you for showing us the Lord Jesus Christ. His argument for his past existence allowed the use of the verb was. He chose the divine am. The glorious name of God, I am that I am, applies perfectly to our Jesus. God does not exist in time like us, things that I've said, past, present, or future. He simply is. He exists above, through, around, before, and after time in endless eternity. We have an origin, a source, time, dependence. He is infinitely independent. Jesus is Jehovah God. Russellites be damned. Here is one of the proofs. What's a Russellite? They're the Jehovah's Witnesses. They take a name they know nothing of. They take a doctrine they know nothing of. They use a Bible that they have corrupted in every verse. The New World Translation. Russellites be damned. This is what Jesus said about himself before Abraham was, I am. He claimed to be the God of the burning bush of Exodus 3.14, whose name, according to Exodus chapter 6 and verse 3, is Jehovah. And you should not be using that name because you do not understand what the Bible says about either Jehovah or his son, Jesus Christ. They make me sick. I'm supposed to hate and so are you with a perfect hatred. The enemies of God and the Jehovah's Witnesses are enemies of God. Jesus equals Jehoshua, equals Jehovah is salvation. That beautiful name that we have of our Savior, Jesus. Mary did not call her baby Jesus. Jesus is a Hebrew word that is transliterated into Greek and then into English. It was Joshua. Joshua. There's such interesting ways to be able to prove that to you. I can take you to Acts chapter 7 and give you a little Bible quiz. Mm -hmm. While you're reading down through there the history of Israel and Stephen's long sermon, you come to verse 45, and it says that Jesus took the Israelites into the land of Canaan. Really? I thought it was Joshua. But see, by looking at that verse, you can tell that the word Jesus means Joshua. Right. Do you know what Moses' successor was named by his father, Nun? Ashia. Ashia, the son of Nun. When Moses, the prophet of God, got his hands on Ashia, the son of Nun, he changed his name to Jehoshua, tacking on J-E-H-O in front of Ashia. What does Ashia mean? Savior, salvation, deliverer. What does Jehoshua mean? Jehovah, 
is Savior, Salvation, Deliverer. Oh, yes. No wonder it says in Philippians chapter 2 that God hath given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the Savior. That's the one I'm preaching to you from John chapter 8. This is why John wrote the Gospel of John, for us to see him, understand him, embrace him, love him, and obey him most of all. Right. Do you understand? Jesus equals Jehoshua. I'm saying the longer version. Joshua in the Bible has seven different spellings of his name. Yeah. You know, I have a few. John, J-O-N, John, J-O-H-N, Jonathan. He has Jehoshua in a couple of forms, Ashia, Joshua, and so forth. It's in the Bible. Jesus equals Joshua. What does Joshua mean? Because Jesus is just the way that we would pronounce that Hebrew name that came into Greek that then comes into English. That's how we pronounce it. Jesus means Joshua. What does Joshua mean? Jehovah, I am, is the Savior. Amen. In Matthew 121, the angel came to Joseph and said, She shall conceive your wife to be, your betrothed Mary, is going to conceive and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That is why he's called Joshua. He would save his people from their sins. Jehovah is the Savior. God, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, came down to this earth and died on the cross as with the body that God gave him through the womb of the Virgin Mary. John has prepared us for this by giving us those verses in John chapter 1. He did the same thing in 1 John chapter 1, didn't he? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have looked upon with our eyes. Beautiful. The first few verses of 1 John as well. Amen. Jesus is the everlasting God by the Jews' own scriptures. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. There's another word for lawyer. When you go meet a lawyer, what do you call him? Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. The Mighty God. The Everlasting Father. Jesus is the Everlasting Father. Amen. Beautiful. Thank you, Lord. In Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, it says this around the place where it tells us that he was going to be born in Bethlehem of Ephratah. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Listen to this prophecy of Jesus. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, all the little towns and villages, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old from everlasting. Oh yes, that's our Jesus, the son of David, born in the city of Bethlehem. I'll not bother you with some of the errors that are made in interpreting those five words. I just want to 
say this about those JWs and their New World Translation. Here's how they translate John 8, 58. Before Abraham came into existence, I have been. See, they want to give up that name. They want to give up the I am. And then when you look at their first cross-reference to justify them doing so, they go to Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8. Is there anything in Proverbs chapter 8 about Jesus? Or is Proverbs chapter 8 a personification of wisdom by the use of feminine pronouns referring to lady wisdom? So they appeal to Proverbs 8.22, and here's how they translate that. Jehovah produced me as the beginning of his way. What does our Bible say? The Lord possessed me because it's wisdom, but they're making it a begotten God. Do you understand? It's terrible. It's heresy. It's blasphemy. It's profanity. I don't take back anything I said about them. Verse 59, then took they up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Mm-hmm. They, then took they up stones to cast at him. The Jews understood our Lord's claim to be eternal God right. by his previous words. Mm-hmm. They had grasped the divine implications earlier when he healed in chapter 5 and verse 18 and tried to kill him. And they will grasp a similar divine implication in John chapter 10, verse 33, and try to stone him for the third time recorded in this gospel. These are the same or similar Jews that denied any murderous intentions toward him. Do you remember in John chapter 7 and verse 20 where they mocked him saying, who wants to kill you? Because he said, why do you want to kill me? They said, who wants to kill you? Mm-hmm. All he had to do was preach a little truth to them and they would kill him. Right. Most of the Jews were children of the devil in every way, including their destiny. A few, like Saul of Tarsus, were God's children in ignorance. The Apostle Paul tells us that as Saul of Tarsus, he obtained mercy from God because what he did, he did ignorantly in unbelief. But God counted him faithful even then because he was zealous with the amount of truth God had revealed to him. And when God revealed more truth to him through Jesus Christ and the road to Damascus, oh yes, what did he do then? He went right on into the city of Damascus, waited for the three days for the Lord to give him his sight back, was baptized, went straight to the synagogue, and preached Jesus Christ. I hope you can notice here that when they were with Pilate in John chapter 18, the Jews told Pilate, this man needs to die. Pilate said, why don't you go and do something about it? They said, we don't have the authority to put anyone to death. They look like they have plenty of authority here, don't they? Here, see, when you're a reprobate and your father is the father of lies, you will say anything. You'll do anything. You'll talk out of both sides of your mouth. It's not our place to put anyone to death, so you're going to have to do it. Let's just grab stones and kill them. And they did that with Stephen, didn't they? Acts chapter 7, it says they stopped up their ears and ran on him with one accord and grabbed stones and stoned Stephen to death. But I just want to share a little bit more. 
why John 18, 31 has the Jews standing before Pilate asking for Jesus to be put to death. Pilate saying, why don't you do it? And they say, we can't do it. The next verse is very interesting. It tells us because the scriptures had to be fulfilled. Right. He had to die the Roman way, Amen. not the Jewish way. The Jewish way would have stoned him to death. There wouldn't have been piercings and there would have been bones broken. He had to die the Roman way. Oh, Lord, you're magnificent. The wisdom and prudence that has abounded toward us through Jesus Christ. That is what Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 12 teach about the wisdom and prudence of God bringing it all to pass in a certain way. You know, brethren, it doesn't matter how Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. He could have hid himself by blinding them. He got, he's done that before in time throughout both Testaments. Um, he could have got lost in the crowd. He had done that before, and we are told that about Jesus Christ. No matter the case, there were so many adversaries, and there were only fearful followers there. He slipped right on out. He was in a confined place. He's in the treasury of the temple, it tells us, and he slips right on out, and he slipped away from them at other times as well, like in his hometown of Nazareth when they tried to lead him to the brow of a hill and throw him off it for preaching election there in the synagogue that day when he came to his hometown, going through the midst of them, and so he passed by. He had other things to do, and he was on his way. He was through with them for the time being. Six months later, he's hanging on the cross of Calvary, he is in every way a perfect Savior for you and me. Amen. We've done with John 8. Well, I guess we can just do this. No, we can't just do that. Right. What are you and I going to do with Jesus Christ? Right. What was it written for? There are many things that Jesus did that are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Yes. And that believing he might have life through his name. We need to lay hold of eternal life by embracing and loving and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and living for him. He is the light of the world. Did we learn that in John 8, 12? I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. That is a fantastic declaration by Jesus about himself and the benefits of following him. What will you do with Jesus of Nazareth? Will you follow him and daily choose light or darkness for your life? There is no other option. It's light or darkness. If you do not believe on him as God's glorious son, verses 21 and 24, you will die in your sins. The only belief that counts, according to verse 31, is faith that continues in his word, continues obeying him, that is a disciple indeed. There are false disciples all over this world. There are false professors and false believers all over this world. John describes several categories of them. John chapter 2, John chapter 6, John chapter 8, verse 30. Those believers were not real believers. Just a little poking from Jesus Christ, and they picked up stones to kill him. The truth of Jesus Christ will free a man from the bondage and servitude of sin. Where are you in bondage? Where is there slavery in your life? You can be freed by the Lord Jesus Christ. 
but it requires continuing in his word, becoming a disciple indeed, and having his truth deliver you from that bondage. If you are not changed, if your life is not changing, your speech getting better, your relationships getting better, then you must not hear him making you not of God. Jesus is the great I am identified clearly to Moses. Beware of ever slighting him. We, have, we want a Christ-centric church. We want everything to bring glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's never slight him. Where is your gladness and joy in Jesus Christ like Abraham had? Where is it? We can't see it. Show it to us. Why aren't you dancing? Why isn't your face glowing, shining? We see better and we see more than Abraham saw. Where is your gladness and joy in Christ? We can have it. It's right there in front of us. We've gone to the temple. We went into the treasury. He spoke. We heard. He left. We watched. Where is your joy? We can be more joyful is what I'm saying. Where is your gladness and joy in Christ? Like Abraham. Because you've had a bad hair day? I speak as a fool. Because of a few trying circumstances that God sent to make you better and give you a chance to truly honor him? Without trying circumstances, you can't honor him. How will you honor him? I think we had a zealot in this pulpit this morning for a few more than 10 minutes telling you that you... I meant that in love. And you all know that. You heard for several minutes, Psalm 107 applied, that we need the trials of life in order to give God a worthy sacrifice. I think he said it about five times. He did not, I did not know what psalm he was going to present, and he didn't know how I was going to end up right now. But the Lord knew both, and the Lord has arranged both. A few trying circumstances in your life are to make you better and give you a chance to honor him. You can't honor him in prosperity. You can honor him in a trial. Much better. You don't have any joy in Christ because of the temporary tinsel of America's prosperity? Please. How about eternal heaven? With this Jesus, our brother, join heirs with him forever. Believe on him. Obey him. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.